0: Hi, everybody. Uh, we have another history tour of Ritchie coming up in September. This time it's being led by Omar Salafu. Um, and we want your questions about Edmonton's Ritchie neighborhood. Maybe you've wondered what's up with the trees that got cut down in White Ave or how the neighborhood has gentrified over the years or even how Ritchie's different cultural communities arrived. Like I heard there are two different Korean grocery stores there and a church. Just um, kind of interesting. It'd be cool to find out how that happened. Uh, so email us by Thursday, August 1st. That's probably tomorrow for you. I'm Chris Chang and Phillips, and this is Let's Find Out, a podcast about the history of Edmonton, Alberta, or with Huskygon, on Treaty 6 territory. We take questions from curious Edmontonians about local history, and then we find out the answers together. Let's find out as a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. And this episode, I have here beside me in studio, our producer, Trevor Chow-Fraser. Hi,
1: how are you doing?
0: So, Trevor, this episode, I finally let my mom ask a question. Good idea, bad idea? Uh well
2: why wouldn't you let your mom ask a question before that's so mean i was concerned about nepotism you know i had a, a job with the city so i now that i don't have that
0: job i No, i don't care
2: mm-hmm. okay yeah so your mom submitted a question at our live show a few months ago where we invited questions about how humans and nature shape each other here in edmonton she asked a question about climate change and farming
0: yeah i Uh, She wanted to know about whether climate change might end up being a good thing for agriculture in this region if, compared to where things have been historically, it's going to be even easier to grow food here.
2: Because she wants the planet to melt?
0: That's actually... No. You might think that no, but that's actually not the reason. (laughs) Uh, She usually uh, lives in Calgary, so I called her up to talk about where her question actually came from. Okay, Mom, I am having tea, and I am drinking out of a travel mug that Mm -hmm. has a... It's got a bean who was wearing a bandana and a cowboy hat. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me the story behind this bean?
1: Oh, that's Mr. Pinto McBean. He is the uh, mascot for the town of Bow Island in uh, southern Alberta. And that mug uh, was made by the, the folks in the town to celebrate a very special anniversary for the town. I cannot remember if it was like 100th year anniversary or something like that, but um, somebody from Pixar had designed it for them. It's pretty cute, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it's like a rootin' tootin' little pinto bean. hmm <laughs> Actually, I guess, I don't remember if this mug is mine or yours. Did, did Am I just using this, or is this my mug?
1: I don't remember giving you a mug. Mm. But as with all children, they seem to think that anything that <laughs> their parents is also there. So you, you're more than welcome to use it.
0: <laughs> okay. How did you acquire, why is, why do you have this?
1: Well, I used to uh, visit the town of Bow Island a long time ago when I worked in the wind power industry and um, we were evaluating a project in that area. And um, so we had many discussions with the town council and, um, They were getting ready to sell these mugs. They weren't actually ready for sale yet, but I convinced them. that it'd be really cool if they gave me some or or sold me some ahead of schedule. So that's how I ended up with some. I got some for my whole team. That's great. Mm -hmm. So
0: So you've been working in climate change related stuff for a long time.
1: Yes, I've been working in climate change related stuff long enough to be cautiously optimistic every time we think we're close to a plan that could deliver real reductions that the, uh, that the government rolls out. Yeah.
0: <laughs> okay, so you came to our live show and you asked a question about climate change and agriculture.
2: What was your mm-hmm. question?
1: So the context is um, a few years ago I was talking to somebody who was telling me that they thought it might be a good idea to buy some land sort of around the Edmonton area um, because they thought that with the impacts of climate change um, they thought that southern Alberta would be impacted by droughts, the land down there would be under pressure and then northern Alberta seems to be more and more impacted by forest fires but they thought the area kind of around Edmonton might be um, a nice spot in the province and might actually benefit from the impacts of climate change and so that, that got me wondering too like is that possible like do we know do we understand but i don't know where to go to get the answer
2: Hmm. all right well let's find out excellent dude your mom's so cool (laughs) what did you find out about her question well hold tight i'll tell you but first we gotta hear about taproot
0: okay so a quick word about taproot edmonton um i'm here with troy troy pavlak hi i'm troy You and I both make podcasts supported by a local journalism initiative called Taproot Edmonton. What's your show called? Speaking Municipally. Kind of a municipal affairs? Yeah, everything to do with council. What's one thing you've gotten to do on Speaking Municipally, um, or one thing you've gotten away with that nobody else in the city is doing? I'll say I drove a 40-foot ETS bus last week because I'm a co-host of Speaking Municipally, so that's fun. Uh, It was the ETS transit competition. So every year ETS, they have media people and counselors drive 40-foot buses through a pylon obstacle course. I placed number three of all the media people. Um, Andrew Knack placed first on counselors. He was heckling me from the sidelines. So that was an interesting thing that I got to do because I heckle counselors every week to uh support Tapper Edmonton to read all the great stuff to listen to all the podcasts go to tapperedmonton.ca okay we're back so okay so usually you and i are the one we we find the guests we chase them
2: correct yeah sometimes you pay me for that (laughs) but in this case that's not what happened no because your mom was like hot on the tail of an, uh, someone that she wanted to talk to. She
0: she informed us. Oh yeah, I've, I've found someone, and oh yeah, I've also already spoken to her. She's interested in being on the show before I even got a chance to look at this person's like LinkedIn profile. You Reporter. met? Yes. We've met. Yeah. Uh, we were phone? way back to thirty
3: seconds ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Have you met in <laughs> person? Or no, we talked phone? on the phone. Okay. Um, my name is Karen Hogan Casera. Born and raised in Edmonton. Um, and uh, right now, I'm the president of my own company called Verasco Solutions. Um, but over the years, I've been lucky enough to stay in the same area, um, working in government, private sector, not-for-profit, um, in the area of climate change and mitigation. How do, we, how do we find ways to slow down climate change in more of the biological land-based agricultural sectors?
0: That's what we mean when we say mitigation, is like trying to slow greenhouse gas emissions.
3: Exactly, exactly. And many of the the things that we can do in agriculture have both mitigation, meaning slow down, but also adapt because we really are probably gonna have to learn how to adapt more so than slow it down.
0: How do you and my mom know each other?
3: Well, Denise and I have worked together over, off and on for, I don't know, the last 15 or so years. We come together every year, couple years, um, with the International Emissions Trading Association.
4: And I will just say that anytime you talk about climate change and the agriculture industry in Canada, everybody points to Karen as the expert on this. Anybody you, you ask about this will say, oh, you need to talk to Karen. So I'm really glad that we get to talk to Karen about this particular topic.
3: (laughs) Thanks, Denise.
0: (laughs) Can you give us an example of the climate change scenarios that farmers in our area are kind of planning for?
3: Well, you know, it's funny because... Um, working at the Department of Agriculture, we would go out and do interviews and and focus groups with farmers. And even though that the rural community may not believe that we're having an effect on the planet, they know that the climate is changing significantly. And so addressing climate change risks is very much on their mind. Um, I think they're they're saying to our government organizations that crop insurance needs to change the way we insure our crops against disasters we need to think about changing you know the predictability the scenarios that that will help ensure that you know if we have a disaster year that were covered. Um, I think that they're trying to figure out an experiment with different varieties. And we're seeing the plant breeding varieties coming along to adapt to the way our, our, our climate is changing. Um, you know, there are some things that they just can't plan against. But, you know, I think about um, the insurance companies. They, they have the actuary tables, I think, better than some of our governments do with their policy and programming around crop insurance. So they collectively picked up a program in the foothills of Alberta, I don't know if you've read about this, but back in the 50s and 40s, the government of Alberta sponsored a program where planes would fly across the Rockies when in the summertime and seed the clouds with silver nitrate to bring the rain down and prevent the hail from coming. Mm-hmm. The government stopped funding that program. The insurance companies got together and said... We've got to we got to keep doing this because the insurance losses in the farms and in calgary and the hail etc they now pay the the planes to fly and seed the clouds so that we don't have those really devastating extreme weather events that can cause loss crops loss of cities towns roofs damages so so yeah it's it's changing out there and um, you know the 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 scenarios that I've got here for Edmonton they are good I mean generally speaking um, when we look at the past changes in Alberta's climate we have seen the corn heat units in other words how many heat units is required to produce corn in the last 100 years extend north by 200 to 300 kilometers. So we can grow corn now. Farmers can choose that variety or that crop to grow corn around central Alberta where we never could before. Um, so you know that the switching of crops, that the breeding of new varieties, trying to, to stay on top of this, we're now one degree warmer here in the Edmonton area than we were 100 years ago. Wow. And the predictions are in some of these scenarios I'll leave with you, that by 2050, we're probably gonna be on average three degrees warmer than we were uh, from our, our 30 year average based on today. So what we can do here in terms of growing you know, crops and, and Edmonton has traditionally had a very strong market garden community because we are on glacial Lake Edmonton so we have um, the clays that settled under a glacial lake.
0: During the last Ice Age, there was a glacier in this spot exactly. that left a lake.
3: Exactly. And that gave rise to our, well, our schmecktite clays. Being a soil scientist, those are the expanding clays that shrink and contract and that frustrate us because we're known as the pothole city of Canada. <laughs> but, but, you know, that's all part of our legacy from the last glacier. And so we've been able to have all of these community gardens and market gardens prop up. And we have a microclimate here that we can grow vegetables um, that you won't see if you go further south. So it's really quite a unique area to grow um, all sorts of variety of things in the Edmonton area.
0: When you talk about that three degrees of warming by 2050, what scenario is that under? Is that under our emissions, like, keep growing as usual or they go down significantly?
3: No, that that's a that's the... A, uh, a, it's um, by the Prairie Adaptation Research Coop Collaborative, mm-hmm. and it's running the six or seven climate model scenarios, taking into account our greenhouse gas emission trajectories today and, different, and, and what it could be. So it runs like seven or eight models together and gives you an average predictability. So you can take a look at the scenarios in there. There's kind of like worst, best, yeah.
0: So you mentioned increased temperature and um growing zones moving farther north. Yes. Um, how overall would you characterize what Edmonton is going to look like in 2050 for agriculture? It, does it strike you as these things being a net benefit for agriculture here?
3: I think generally speaking, the prognosis is good. Um, so maybe that's one good thing about uh, the warming of the of the temperatures, and the rainfall, of course, is the big variables too. Will it will it fall more in the growing season when we need it to fall? And that's that. Denise was quite right. Further south in the southwest corner, there's challenges. Here in the central part of the province, we'll probably get the precipitation we need during the growing season to realize, you know, a a, a better outcome for a different variety of crops too. So the prognosis overall is good. But I'll caution that with, have you noticed pests around here that you haven't seen before? I know my lilies are being decimated by this little red bug. Mm. And um, that red bug is attacking most people's lilies in Edmonton and there isn't a lot that we can do about it right now and that's little bugs been able to come up because it's warmer and it's migrating northward so so those are the challenges that we're going to face is some of the the crops and diseases and pests that we haven't seen before and figure out how we're going to deal with them
0: have either of you poked around the climate atlas website of alberta It's there's a there's a really cool website for all of um canada uh, do you mind if i Pull it up. Yeah, no, pull it up. It's kind of a cool resource for just visualizing some of this. The Prairie Climate Center in Manitoba. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Prairie okay. Climate Center in Manitoba. Um so they made this cool atlas of Canada where you can poke around, see different zones. And uh, I was just looking at our zone here in the edmonton area, which includes cameras, which is where you and I are going later today. Okay. Um, yeah. Um and it talked about uh for a climate scenario where there's more climate change over the next thirty years. Um, the length of the frost-free season here, like the go, like, we have almost a month more without frost.
3: That's amazing, isn't it? Basically, in in by twenty fifty, we should have a similar climate that Medicine Hat has, but wow. with more rainfall. Exactly. Holy man. Exactly. So that's that's the prediction. So we could probably grow. You know, beans and sugar beets, like what are the crops of the future going to be? Mm-hmm. Um, we could, you know, we do potatoes do well here, um, but we'll get adequate rainfall. We won't need to irrigate, and um, we'll probably be able to grow a wider variety of vegetables if we still have the farms within the city limits. Oh. That's the other thing. The northeast area of Edmonton is a really unique growing area. So, Zaychuk Farms, Holes, um, the Visser Farms, all those ones I've been talking about, you know, the, they they just have an incredible ability to, um, you know, supply our city with vegetables, and to continue doing that, you know, we we need to help protect. I think those those farms within the city limits, and I just might do a plug for Doug Visser, who right now is trying to raise funding on a crowdsource page for a conservation easement to preserve 233 acres of his market garden farm um, for. Ever to be mm-hmm. able to grow vegetables and be that unique microclimate growing zone that that's out there.
4: I was just wondering it. So the threat is urban
3: expansion, yeah. into
4: these prime yeah. agricultural areas. Yeah,
3: well they've been annexed. They're within the city limits, and there have been lots of efforts over the years to preserve those market gardens for the unique qualities that they have.
0: And like, why, why, what, what, what makes you feel like you have an emotional stake in that fight?
3: Well, because I used to work in the Department of Agriculture and Forestry on land use and was very much involved with his, his uncle and his father and a lot of the people there who were trying to stop the annexation and keep their, their market gardens and that area alive. So I was directly involved with it back when I was in the Department of Agriculture. Mm. And so, yes, I do have a soft spot in there. And actually researching for this this um, podcast, Chris, I went on to the site and my company donated $500 towards the conservation easement. They're trying to raise money to keep that. And I think they want $15,000, so yeah. So I thought, damn, that's great. I'm gonna do it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's an interesting little corner of the world that Farming can be both so affected by climate change and have an impact on keeping it to a minimum.
3: Yeah. Well, and and your mom, the nature based solutions manager for Shell, which is an awesome title to have. <laughs> I mean, Shell's recognized that if we can, you know, there aren't many sectors of the world that while they're producing food can suck produced um, Carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere through plants and photosynthesis and build soil organic carbon, or trees doing the same thing as they grow and, and sequester carbon. And so that how we mobilize that 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 sink, if you will, sinking that CO2 into the soils and into the trees is so important. And we call that building the biological bridge until we can actually transition our energy sources so they're no longer emitting fossil fuels.
4: Mm-hmm. Yes, thank you. Mm-hmm. I, I won't go too much into that. But I think that nature has um, um, a really significant part to play in how we, we try to mitigate um, the CO2 in the atmosphere. Yes, definitely. I don't want to leave people with the, the, the impression that we're going to be okay. Because as Karen said, I think that, you know, with the extremes even though on average, we're gonna be better off, the extremes are going to be in some cases pretty devastating. So I think we need to keep
3: that in mind. And I I maybe just close with um, opportunities and risks and um, it'll be challenging for our farmers to be able to stay on top of the changing conditions with the choices in crops they make, the way they manage those crops, the new little pests that will pop up. As a result of a warmer climate so we've got to be on our toes and uh, adaptation as well as mitigation is really important
2: so trevor thoughts yeah like they were just saying um how farmers uh, farmers have this crucial role uh, because they're they're so aware of what's happening with the changing climate and they have to react and like be on top of all the changes that are going to be happening so quickly. Like what they learned is when they were learning to be farmers, are going to be different from when they're like older farmers. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I was, I was, I was surprised, I guess maybe when she talked earlier about how aware farmers are of climate changing, because we think of farmers as like a conservative constituency mm-hmm. and people who would align with like, governments that are not taking action on climate. So that kind of jumped out at me. I was surprised. Yeah. Aren't you hungering now to see what it's like on an actual
0: farm? (laughs) (laughs) I'm starving. Okay. uh, So you found us someone who I think it's fair to say he and his family are going way, way beyond the average and thinking about this stuff. Um, It was uh, so cool going to see their place. And you met their dog. I met their dog and I loved him and you'll see. I just feel like the dog and I had so much in common. Let's Find Out is brought to you in part by the Edmonton Public Library. Here's a fun fact. When I was a kid, I used to go to the branch that was downstairs in Southgate Mall, and I did their summer reading challenges. And years later, I was interviewing Vivek Shraya, the author slash musician slash activist, and I was like, hey, did you used to work at the library at Southgate? And lo and behold, Vivek said yes, she totally used to help me check out books there. This is a really weird coincidence. This summer. Kids can sign up for the reading challenge till August 24th, and they'll have a chance to win prizes and check out free classes and special guest performances. You can learn more at epl.ca summerstarts summer starts. Let's Find Out is also brought to you by the Edmonton Community Foundation, makers of the other show that I'm working on these days, The Well Endowed Podcast, with stories that tie back to the impact of the endowment funds that the Edmonton Community Foundation gives out, and lots of stories that are just big picture things affecting our city stories about pot legalization and arts funding and history i've been doing alberta history stories for the podcast of course and the latest one is about one night a hundred years ago at the hotel when the knights of the grip gathered to celebrate the desk clerk bob patchell and his impending marriage watch out for that one on the well-endowed podcast download it on your app of choice and check out the show notes and subscribe at thewellendowedpodcast.com
2: okay we're back so yeah, I wanted to help Chris find out how an actual farmer in the Edmonton area is prepping for climate change. And so I asked around uh, the University of Alberta and I got a hot tip for this young farmer named Dakota Cohen. Um, basically, all I really knew is that he's really into permaculture. But you know, when I think of permaculture, I think of uh, the little tiny block at the corner of your neighborhood that's uh, doing like urban gardening in a permaculture way but this guy has a 250 acre farm and it's all into permaculture so i thought that's pretty unique i want to know more
0: um so my mom and i drove out from edmonton to visit cohen farm uh it's south of hay lakes it's about an hour and a half drive south to actually visit the farm, um, maybe a touch outside the Edmonton microclimate with our special glacial soils, but close enough to be good data, I think. And uh, Trevor, can you guess what game my mom and I played on the drive down?
2: Let me think. Games that Chris plays in the car. Moo moo cow 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 moo <laughs> cow cow. I feel like that might
0: almost be two cow cows. Yeah, it's uh, two cow cows. Cow-cow. <laughs> okay, we can split that one. Uh, so we drive past all these fields of canola and cow pastures and then we turn off onto this gravel road and see a very different property the first thing you notice is there are a lot of trees it almost looks cooler like physically cooler like a couple degrees temperature drop from the canola fields across the road and we also noticed a yellow sign on a post that said in big bold letters please do not spray between signs sensitive vegetation nearby So, you can tell right away, Dakota and his parents are definitely not running your average farm. Hi, I'm Chris. So, my mom explained that she wanted to know whether climate change is going to end up benefiting farmers in our area. That was
4: my question. And so, Christopher's helping me find out (laughs) the answer. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Um, Yeah, so my producer, Trevor, uh, he'd read about uh, some of the stuff you're doing out here, and it sounded like you. Uh, we're already thinking a lot about um, climate scenarios, so yeah. we're excited to see kind of some of what you do.
5: Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's definitely something that we've, um, you know, I've, I've done a lot of research into you know, climate change and and kind of the evidence for and against it, and and the the nice thing with the work that we're doing is, is it either way we're we're going to benefit. And so, <laughs> uh, so, my name is Dakota Cohen. Uh, I farm on 250 acres with my parents, Michael and Laura, out near Farentosh, Alberta. I'm a second-generation organic farmer, fifth-generation farmer in this area, and all I've ever wanted to do is be a farmer. Really? (laughs) Yeah, that's all I've ever wanted to do. Since the time I could walk, I just followed my dad around doing chores (laughs) all day long, and uh, and now I'm basically living the dream, so. Do
0: you have siblings? I'm the youngest of six kids. Did they also have the stream?
5: They did not, which makes it really easy for me. I <laughs> don't have to fight anybody for it. So, yeah, no, it's just it's just me and mom and dad on the farm. We yeah, we raise grass fed beef, milk fed pork, pasteurized eggs. We grow most of our own food. Uh, we're starting to diversify into kind of perennial fruit and nut crops, things like berries, hazelnuts, apples, plums, pears, and. Uh, our kind of whole goal on the farm is to try to produce the most nutrient-dense food possible, and but to do that in a way that is good for um, the planet, good for other people,
0: and will allow future generations to do the same thing. So at this point, I could not concentrate because Dakota's big friendly dog was rubbing his face in the driveway gravel. I am totally enchanted by your dog, Caslo. <laughs> what? <laughs> Is this he, a
5: scratch? What's that? Y- yeah, he's he has allergies. Oh, he's uh he's allergic to basically out, outdoors. Oh no. We gave him a gave him a blood test a couple years ago to figure out what he was allergic to and it was like everything. Aww. so we we give him kind of allergy medication and stuff, but it doesn't seem to help. He just he's just always itchy and
0: <laughs> I get allergies too, Caslo. Yeah. <laughs>
2: I'm also super allergic to dogs. So I don't know if I sympathize or if I'm like, ha, now you know.
0: Dakota explained that he sees uh, two approaches in farming, basically, controlling and manipulating natural systems or partnering and working with them. And he thinks that only the second one has a future.
4: So what is the ecosystem you're trying to create out here? Like, what are the characteristics of that ecosystem?
5: What does it support? Good question. Great question. The simple kind of question that we asked ourselves is what does our land want to be and if we so if we were to walk away from our land and do nothing and and you know basically not have any human involvement whatsoever in you know 100 years or so what it would evolve into would be called an aspen parkland biome that's the area that we're in
0: okay so when we chatted one of the Natural systems that you work with that I thought was fascinating was um, the water charging. So, um, do you mind uh, showing us some of what you do? Yeah, let's go take a look. Okay. He walked us over to a pond by the road, and Caslow followed, of course.
5: In our area, uh, we get less rain than the Sahara Desert. What? <laughs> the Sahara Desert, on average, it gets about 20 inches of rain a year, but because it's closer to the equator, the evaporation rate's higher. So, uh, so we we only get about 12 inches of rain a year on average, and uh, in some years it's far less. We've had as low as two inches of rain in a in a growing season, which is. And last year we had one of the worst droughts in 20 years in our county, but we also, funny enough, we also had the worst flooding in 20 years in our county within the same year, and which is I think the. That this is probably more more what we're going to see is we're not going to see like a climate change We're going to see climate variability variability and uh, And there's gonna be a huge oscillation between the windiest day to the calmest day the sunniest day the the, the cloudiest day And you're gonna see them back to back and um, which, which are our only option to dealing with that variability is is um, the ability to adapt to it essentially and um, so, anyways coming back to water now the in our area waters are is our uh weak link our limiting factor and or it was you know six years ago when when uh we started thinking about our farm kind of through this this lens of an, of an ecosystem and now it's actually one of our strongest uh uh factors the strongest ingredients I don't know if you can hear that sound uh beside us but that's basically a Uh, a creek that has started on our farm as a result of the management that we've been doing here just in the last, like, six years.
0: There's like, literally, or you're on a floating dock in a (laughs) little pond covered in duckweed. Yep. How do
1: you
4: create a creek? (laughs)
0: For uh, almost 100 years,
5: the past farmers had drained all these all these wetlands to try to increase their cropping areas, and um, but ironically, they uh, what started to happen is the water table started to drop. And there's a lake right beside us, Red Deer Lake, that used to be spring-fed, um, and the water level is very constant for the past you know 40 years. It's been dropping steadily every year. All the springs have dried up. the The wetlands are all disappearing. And, but the funny thing is the amount of rain and snow we're getting has stayed the same. So what's happened? And basically what's happened is we have, we have uh, intervened in a self-regulating e- ecosystem that had found ways of cycling those four ingredients, water being the, the main one, as efficiently as possible.
0: What is Keslo eating?
5: Uh, I think it's just some quack grass or something. They... <laughs> Kesel, where's your ball? Where's your ball? Go get it. Where's your ball? Go find it. Bring it here. So, almost fifty percent of our precipitation comes from snow. And and if you you know are familiar with you know a typical Alberta spring, the ditches flow like crazy, and the sidewalks are you know the cities are are inundated with water for about two weeks in the springtime, and then it's gone. And uh, another way to think about that is you basically had half of your rain or your moisture in two weeks and and so the the way that ecosystems evolved to deal with that huge surge of water flow was uh through wetlands and you know different organisms uh, whenever there's a, a resource in an ecosystem that's in abundance there's typically an organism that evolves to to fulfill that niche, so things like beavers would then come in, and uh, they would, you know, stop, dam up those those water flows, and allow the water to infiltrate into the ground. And there's a great book called *Eager Beaver* uh, that was just published a couple of years ago that documented just the extent that beavers, uh, uh, th- their role in kind of shaping the North American ecosystem, and it, absolutely amazing book to think about the the scale that this. You know animal that is you know 30 to 40 pounds had in basically uh, creating the entire watersheds and uh, and that that's not even the the giant beavers that were you know hundreds of pounds mm. so um,
0: so you've so you, cons- you hired a bunch of beavers?
5: <laughs> uh, actually, no. The, the, there, but there did used to be beavers on this farm. There are, uh, there are old stands of trees that still have kind of beaver marks in them. All right, cool. Um, but uh, we, we haven't yet had beavers come back. But That was the first step, is just trying to s- slow down water. And we're doing that through various ways. One of them is by, by actually putting wet riparian areas back and fencing them off for, from our livestock. Uh, otherwise is, is putting in dams to hold more water back. We're also using a, a technique called swales, which are essentially a wetland on contour. It's just picture like a ditch. That's just like a long, curvy wetland. The funny story about this is is when my dad was my age, um, he before he bought the land, he knew the, the farmer who owned this land and, and all the wetlands weren't quite gone yet. And uh, so when he was you know a young man, he he actually w- would hunt muskrats in some of the wetlands. Uh, around the farm, hmm. and then you know he got older, and the wetlands came down, and and there hadn't been and hadn't been muskrats on this farm for for you know, probably 30, 40 years, and the the year we built these dams, and the water infiltrated in, within days there was muskrats what? back. Um, so there there actually is a muskrat that lives in here now. You can see the little the little trails.
0: Can we come out yeah, on the dock so,
5: here? Yeah. So you can see the little trails through the duckweed. Um, though that's, that's the pattern that the, the muskrat makes because he kind of swims around. So I'm not sure where his den is, but um, we've had a muskrat.
0: Is this amazing? They went from a plummeting water table to a climate-proof farm for drought just by building
2: some dams and swales, and now they're getting muskrats back. It, it really sounds amazing. <laughs> so, but, but all this water storage. Is it, like, working out financially for them? My mom asked the same thing.
5: Anytime there's an excess energy source in, a, in a, an ecosystem, there's usually an organism that that uh, will come into the ecosystem to uh, take advantage of that uh, that resource. That niche.
0: Dakota is um, using a net to grab some duckweed up from the pond surface.
5: Yeah, so this... This is a plant called duckweed. The Latin name is Lemna Minor. And this plant is, uh, has more protein than soybeans. Mm-hmm. This, um, this plant, I, I just I threw a handful of this into the into this water body a couple of years ago. And the um, within you know a few days it had covered the entire surface. And I thought, oh, that's, that's kind of neat. And the reason I threw it in because it, it, it looked nice. It was on another pond. And, and, and one of the reasons we built this pond was for uh, you know, aesthetic reasons as well as for fire suppression and to also build the road beside us here. But uh, when I threw it into the pond, it was purely for aesthetic reasons. But then once it took over the pond, I came out one day and I noticed the chickens were eating it. And I thought, that's really interesting. I, I wonder why. And I just grabbed some and threw it on the ground and they just went crazy for it. Wow. And so then I harvested a whole bunch and, and they ate like a whole five gallon bucket. And I thought, oh, that's, that's really interesting. I wonder what, I knew it was called duckweed, but I didn't know you know, what its Latin name was, where it came from, anything about it. So I started to do some research on it. Turns out that it has more protein than soy. Uh, it doubles uh, within 24 hours in the right conditions. So basically these are all these are all individual plants
1: a little
0: like almost like half the size of a lentil kind of green thing yeah
5: and and they have these little rootlets that float down into the water and they basically pull nutrients out of the water and they use that to grow on and um so you can grow literally thousands of pounds of biomass per acre constantly and with nothing more than basically warm nutrient-rich water and, and every livestock animal can eat it so cows pigs chickens can eat it uh, protein is actually one of the biggest limiting uh, resources in in kind of agriculture uh, which is why soy is, is such a heavily relied upon feed like it's in everything
4: but so what does it taste like
5: I've never eaten it myself <laughs> is it okay to eat uh, I wouldn't eat it at this pond because it's <laughs> it, there's quite a lot of quite a lot of nutrients in it. and there's also as you as you can see, there's there's a lot of other organisms that live in yeah. it. So I mean, there's there's things like freshwater shrimp, there's water scorpions. Those red dots are eggs. There's a little worm there. There's you know snails. There's just uh, there's a whole ecosystem, whole ecosystem that lives <laughs> lives within this one plant. This and was
0: just two scoops with the net. Yeah. Just to sum up, yeah. like how much so water storage you have we, on the farm now?
5: We have. About uh, five acres of dams. We have about three kilometers worth of swales, which are those wetlands on contour that we've actually built, or um, through 3,000 meters. And uh, all told, our farm harvests uh, more than 10 million gallons of water every spring runoff, just from the snowmelt, plus whatever water we like, we harvest from the the runoff from rain. Uh, which, to put that into perspective, is 40 years worth of water for our farm
0: every, so, year.
5: every year and we've, we've done that for um, five or s- five years now that um, everything is filled up and uh, so you know over over 200 years worth of water we've stored in the last five years based on how much water we're pulling out of our well and our neighbors uh, have made comments about how their wells have actually increased in productivity. This year you know we had a, a creek that basically started on the farm. And within a few years, I anticipate springs coming back. And um, uh, my goal before I die is to have water leaving the property 365 days of the year, sustained. <laughs> and um, and I, I think actually, I, I thought it was going to take my whole life to do that. And I think I in three or four more years, we could probably wrap that up.
0: <laughs> I, no, you'll have to add something new to your list. <laughs>
5: yeah. Um, so we can we can go over and. and Check out some of other stuff, and I'll take some of this duckweed with us. Cool. And show you guys how much the chickens
0: love it. Hey guys, we walked up to this pen area where the chickens and the pigs were.
4: So to go back to, how do you think climate change is going to impact farming? How do you think this farm might change if the the temperature rises by one or two degrees?
0: Yeah. There is a small stampede of chickens. In in Darwin's book
5: *The Origin of Species*, he the there's a misquote that he where he, people think he talks about the survival of the fittest. Uh, what he actually said was uh, the species that are most uh, adaptable to change are the ones that survive. And so we have no idea whether or not the climate's going to get colder or warmer, and whether or not it, it, it'll do both, which is probably what likely is going to happen. And so our solution to that is to um, basically use diversity. Oh, Caslow. Is he rubbing his face in that? <laughs> and manure, yeah. Get out of here, dog. <laughs> uh, so that the, only, the only solution to change is, uh, is options. And, and biodiversity, so what we're doing is just trying to have as many different experiments running as possible, so that no matter what happens, hopefully within within certain kind of dose dependencies obviously if the if you know the temperatures go too high, there's nothing that we could do individually but so what that looks like is we're uh, we're breeding animals that are really hardy so animals that can survive and really uh, like my pigs are outside from plus 40 degrees celsius to minus 40 degrees celsius uh with with the only extra the only shelter is basically protection from the wind and straw um, same thing with the beef cows our chickens have a building that is insulated but there's no external heat um, so we're trying to we're actually breeding our own animals on farm to uh, help them adapt to our particular climate Other things are just having a huge variety of of species to choose from. So we've got uh, about 35 or 40 different species of perennial fruits and berries on the farm. And some years, you know, one species does really well, the next year won't grow at all or fruit at all. Uh, last year was a really great year for hascaps or honeyberries. This year, I, I picked like two, but uh, um, I'm getting a lot of red currants and black currants and apples this year, whereas I didn't get any last year. Hmm. And and the, last year was one of the worst routes in 20 years. This year, it's we've had lots of moisture. So um, having those options, which is the same way that an ecosystem uh, has, has evolved to adapt to, to changes, is just biodiversity. Do you
0: have a a name for the particular breed of pig you're developing? Does it get called like a, a Cohen hog? <laughs> uh, not yet. Uh, right, right now,
5: they would fall under the breed Berkshire.
0: Then Dakota took us out in the field to show us the strategy behind the food forest that they're planting. And we walked through a pasture full of, seriously, Trevor, thigh-high vetches and crimson clovers and all this other really cool stuff to get there. And Caslow, of course, was diving in hunting snakes.
2: Marcel often tells me that she's thigh-high in kvetches
5: one of the things that we're um, doing is is trying to mimic our, our successional cycle which is an aspen parkland biome groves of trees interspersed with grasslands so we've got we just came through you know a grassland and now we're in what will, what will soon be a, a future a grove of trees uh, except that the trees that we're using are uh, the, that's a broad pattern is is just that there are trees and grasses, but then as managers, we can decide which species we want. So, you know, aspen and spruce and things like that, they're native to this area, but uh, we, we were able to introduce another species. So this is a uh, buffalo berry.
0: So we're walking along a hill and we're running our hands through the leaves of these young bushes, looking for ripe berries and the black currant plants and brushing past waist high bur oak trees, just getting baby acorns.
5: Raspberries aren't quite ready yet. These are cherry plums. Um, it doesn't look like they have many b- fruits this year, but it's a really good apple year. And uh, the raspberries always do really well. These are the hascaps, they didn't do very well. But the black currants are just coming on right about now, and they're, cool. doing, they're doing really nice. So, yeah, feel your boots.
0: Whoa, those so, are awesome.
5: Wow. So it's like a um, apple cucumber They're really weird or really different taste
0: more crunchy than eggs there's, yeah, theres black raspberries there's... my mom and I could have been out there for days Trevor would you do you feel like we got an answer to the like general question yeah. you started with
4: yeah I think so
0: okay yeah it's interesting like like setting out thinking about like is climate change going to be a net benefit for agriculture in our area like my answer that I would take away from being here is like you've planned for all scenarios like you've made it so it's going to be a win-win scenario for you regardless of what happens because there's there's no way we can um we
5: like just a simple analogy to think about this is like look at your weather forecast Um, on like the two-week setting and write down what it actually says or take a screenshot of it and then watch and see what actually happens. We can't even predict weather three four days out and we're trying to predict whether that's gonna what the climate's gonna be like you know 10 years into the future there's no way we can do it. Um, So all models are wrong but some of them are gonna be useful and so the, the, the solution to a changing climate is is trying to be as adaptive as possible and are the only thing that's figured out how to do that in the planet's ecosystems. I mean, we've had um, ice age, super volcanoes. I, I, well, obviously, we can't insure against things like that. But a few degrees temperature shift, shift not, a, not a problem in my opinion. If, if, we, um, if we start to partner with ecosystems and, uh, and uh, limit our dependency upon finite and destructive resources like fossil fuels...
2: I mean, it's just fascinating to hear someone be like a few degrees difference. No big deal. No big deal. (laughs) But (laughs) only because we've like built our agricultural system to be very fragile Mm. because it's based on like a like zero degree difference (laughs) variability. You know,
0: he actually uh, it's interesting you say the word fragile because one of the things he talked about was how much he likes the book The Black Swan and wanting to embrace the concept of not being fragile or resilient, but being anti-fragile, having a system that can absorb radical change in a way that makes the system stronger. It was it was very cool. And then as we were wa- walking back, the bubble burst a little bit. 1st you we're talking about how Dakota's own folks feel about all these approaches they've been using on the farm. Did what I-
4: do your parents think about
0: this? Oh, they, they were doing it before I was even born. Really? Yeah, yeah they made the transition
5: to organics 30, uh, 31 years ago in 1988. So.
0: What did their parents think of it?
5: Uh, they didn't like it. There's still um, what's called a stigma around this kind of farming because you know there's all these silly arguments that well this kind of farming could never feed the world. I'm I'm the fifth generation to farm in this area, and uh, uh, you know my my dad's parents are not very approv- approving of the way that we farm because it's. You know, because we, because we have uh, basically chosen to go a different path, um, we've, you know, basically um, said that what we thought. a snake. Um, you know, it's. it's they feel like it's a value judgment on their yeah, life. It's, it's a value judgment against what they were doing, which I mean, it, in a certain way, it is. But, but uh, I also believe that that you know, most people are. are genuinely good people and they're just doing the best they can with the tools they have available to them and and the nature of of a successional cycle in any ecosystem is that every kind of community that comes afterwards is gonna have more resources available to them and so you know what my grandparents were doing was completely different they were in a completely different time and space
0: I was just I was surprised to hear that about his grandparents
2: yeah, I mean, it's, he's so young, and I just assumed that he must have, like, a big family supporting him on this.
0: And then you'll never guess what went overhead as we were talking.
2: Oh, no.
5: With our food dollars, see that that plane right there is a crop spraying plane. Because it's so wet this year, uh, they can't get into their fields to spray, and so they'll be spraying via the air, um, which is... Probably the worst way to spray because you get drift and there's always overshoot and it's not as accurate and mm-hmm. so they'll I've, it's the first plane i've seen in a couple years but it's it's shitty on like, like he's coming around he'll be doing the field right across to us
0: because it might drift onto your land
5: and you'll, you'll be able to smell it and within five minutes you'll be able to smell um it's, it's probably roundup um well, you know how you can uh, prevent that uh, build a wind farm for <laughs>
4: yeah. us to <laughs> well, that's actually why
5: we have that's actually why we have so many rows of trees and shelter belts is to stop the drift from coming over but when they spray so high um, well, let's see the the wind is blowing this way typically our prevailing winds do blow away from us but and then this this is the thing is like it doesn't matter what we do on our little you know piece of land there are um, you know most of the like in in our region here, less than 5% of the land is, is, is uh, not farmed. So 95% is, is in farming and most of it is, is farmed like that. So we need to create a shift um, as, um, as an entire culture to uh, a, a way of providing for our basic needs that is not just sustainable, it's actually regenerative.
0: My mom and I hop back in the car uh, to kind of debrief. Wow,
4: that was fun. Yeah, we do that again. <laughs> Joking.
0: That was more uh, thorough than I expected.
4: Mm-hmm. That was a lot of fun.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Glad we got to taste stuff. That.
4: That's amazing. Yeah. He's very knowledgeable. I cannot believe
0: how much water they're storing here.
4: I can't believe how thoughtful he is about farming. Yeah. yeah. And natural ecosystems. That's pretty cool.
0: Yeah. Hmm. Um. So yeah, thoughts on generally today? How have uh, talking to how has talking to Karen and talking to Dakota changed how you think about how climate change is going to affect farming here?
4: Well, I guess there's a little bit of good and a little bit of bad, but if we're thoughtful, um, I guess it doesn't have to be all negative. We just need to make sure that we've planned for what what may happen.
5: Cool. Thanks, mom.
4: You're welcome. Happy to be along for the ride.
0: (laughs) Thanks for listening. Let's Find Out is produced by Trevor Chow-Fraser and me, Chris Chang and Phillips. Let us know what you think. Drop us a line at chris at letsfindoutpodcast.com.
2: You can download all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcatcher. Sign up for our newsletter to hear about new episodes, live events, recipes, and updates on the book club this season. We're reading books every month that tie into some of the big ideas about humans and nature.
0: On Thursday, August 29th, we're meeting up to talk about The Culture of Nature by Alexander Wilson. Meetup details on our website. Uh, This is one of the books that's um, pretty sure out of print, so let me know if you're having trouble finding the book. And in
2: September, we'll be reading a green design book called Cradle to Cradle. Thank you to Denise Chang-Yen, Karen Hogan-Kozira, and Dakota Cohen. And to Taproot Edmonton and the Edmonton Historical Board. Thanks to everyone who's been supporting this podcast.
0: Especially Finn.
2: Oh, and, uh, d- uh wait, hang on. We got an iTunes review. <laughs> <laughs> Alex P underscore Edmonton says... This is a must-listen for anyone in Edmonton. A great show that is well-produced and fun to listen to. I really enjoy the topics this podcast covers, colon, close parentheses. Alright, oh, right, right, right. smiling. Okay. <laughs> Original music for this podcast is by the electrically lovely human being Doug Hoyer. Until next time, keep your questions coming.